Hello and welcome to NHSR podcast number six on the 21st of January 2022. This is the NHSR podcast. I've started saying what NHSR is because I understand that some people have found this. I don't know how, but they have found it without knowing what NHSR is. So NHSR is a community of like-minded individuals who use open source data science tools and who like to share their code. We are particularly keen on using R, but we also are supportive of the open source data science languages such as Python. And we work in the UK across the NHS, as well as in health and social care more generally. Today, I'll be talking to Marcus Bohr, who describes himself as a general hacktitioner, a clinician who codes and an advocate of open source medicine. We'll all talk about all those subjects in a moment. So Marcus, if you could just begin just by introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about, about who you are and what you do. Well, hi, um, hi to the NHSR community. Um, uh, it, it does confuse people bizarrely because I, the first person that I told about the fact I was going to be on this podcast said, well, so is that like another, we've got NHS X, NHS E, NHS D, is NHSR like another organisation? I'm like, no, 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 it's not that at all. So yeah, uh, it's kind of bizarre, but um, uh I'm a, I'm a GP in Yorkshire, uh, I'm a locum, so I'm kind of freelance essentially. And over the past 10 years, I've become more and more involved in health technology. I started out by getting involved in GP systems. So uh, I joined the Royal College of General Practitioners Health Informatics Group. And I was a kind of wide-eyed um, newbie in that world about 10 years ago when I started going to their meetings and learning about how GP systems work on the inside. Um, and now I'm the chair of that group. In fact, I've got about three weeks, well, no, actually just a week to go in my chair's tenure. And I'm actually about to hand over to the next chair. Um, but yeah, so I've, I've, I've got this kind of bizarre um, freelance hybrid career, which is a bit general practice, a bit, um, knowing about GP systems and doing the kind of policy and, and national stuff to do RCGP on general practice systems. And I'm also a developer. Um, I taught myself to do, to write code after going to NHS Hack Day. And I met some cool coders there and I thought, I want to learn, I want to do this. I want to know how, how they do this. So I, I taught myself to code uh, Python first and then uh, Ruby and a bit of JavaScript and, and I can do other things as well. DevOps is a big thing for me. Um, so yeah, I've got this real jumble of, of skills, which some people think is incredibly valuable and some other people also think is just a complete waste of time. <laughs> yes, I must say it's a very common theme on this podcast actually, is that lots of us wear lots of different hats. Uh, it's quite a common thing. I think there's something, there's a sort of kind of weird synergy or there's something that will bringing together of seeing the, the different worlds. Um, you introducing yourself has, has made me realize I actually forgot to introduce myself because I'm even six podcasts in, still not very good at this basic stuff. So I just want to just quickly say who I am. So I'm Chris Beely and I'm a data scientist. I'm the uh, co-chair of the NHSR Technical Advisory Group. Right, okay, so let's kick off properly now. So, um, so one of my favorite things that you wrote is about the content of open source medicine. So please tell us about open source medicine and why you think it's so important. Right, well, yeah, open source is a massive uh, thing for me. Um, and open source medicine is not something I invented. 
In fact, it was probably invented by Hippocrates or maybe even before him. Medicine is actually just open source. It, it, is, it has always been open source. So part of the Hippocratic Oath actually talks about the idea that you must teach other um, doctors how to do doctoring. You're not allowed to keep it secret. Um, and that's a fundamental tenet of the way that we've always done medicine. And you can see that theme all the way through anyone who's got any um, experience working in any healthcare environment, even if it's not um, medicine, you know, within nursing or any other allied health profession, you will have found that people tend to teach. Um, there is a culture of teaching. We have teaching sessions. There are teaching posts. Um, there's a lot about passing on the knowledge. Um, so I didn't invent it at all. I'm trying to reclaim it because software has taken a turn for the worse. So healthcare software is all proprietary. And that probably didn't matter 30 years ago when the best healthcare software was really just about sort of, it was like a filing cabinet for whose appointments are when. You know that kind of really basic scheduling and stuff like that. That well, that's not that's not that important. And and you could probably say, okay, fine, let, let let those things be closed source. But as software for medicine gets more and more complex and more capable, and um, you know, capable of of assisting diagnostic decisions or highlighting important information to clinicians, um, it's incredibly important that that knowledge base that's in the software is part of medicine and not part of the software industry. And I think we've got to really stand up for ourselves in the next couple of decades and, and put them back in the box, as it were, as a, as a software industry and say, look, um, this is special. Software that's used for medicine is not like software that you, you, know, you haven't just invented your own social media or something like that. It's not yours, it's ours, it's medicines. It belongs to medicine you are able to make money from it. I'm not saying that you can't have a commercial model, but the source code, the knowledge base has to be open. And I think we will, we will win it purely because actually the rest of the open source world is showing us that progress happens much faster in the open source world than it happens in the closed source world um, because everybody can join in. So. Where you, when you've got something like medicine and you've got lots of clever people inside medicine, nursing and, and other professions, they all want to get involved and help out and improve things. And they can only do that in an open source model. They can't do that if the only um, medical um, data models or the only medical algorithms are all closed and proprietary and protected. So the even if we lose ground, I think we've lost ground really in the last 10 or 20 years against the proprietary world, um, we'll get back because once we've start building, once we've started to build those um, open source communities around, around medicine and around particular medical algorithms, um, the communities that use those algorithms will get involved and will evolve those algorithms much faster than the proprietary world can afford to do. So we'll, we'll, we'll overtake them, um, but it will just take time. 
Yes, indeed. I mean, it's worth saying as well, you're saying about it being much more valuable now. I think the other thing that frustrates me about the way that uh, we, things go with open source in our world is open source has, has developed so much. It's so much easier now to share code. And it's it's such a vibrant play. You know, we have things like Docker and we have, you know, like um, lots of work around, you know, doing uh, deploying different images and, you know, all this kind of thing. And often that work hasn't really caught up. But, you know, we, we're still stuck with the same kind of proprietary works on my machine type models. The other thing that I find remarkable is that quite often a lot of the code that's being written that's not being shared is being produced by people who are actually paid by the taxpayer. So it's not even just a battle between sort of proprietary software giants and the public sector, although it is that as well. It's also a battle between those who want to control the information they've produced and you know and 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 gain the power that they've had you know within their own career who themselves you know are being funded publicly which i find you know re remarkable that, that, that it goes on yeah I, I mean absolutely in fact i feel so strongly about it that i'm part of a community that has tried to challenge that so we're um we've actually fairly recently formed a public money public code um organization which is a community interest company that has that as its focus that if public money is used for writing code then that code should be public um, and there's so many reasons not just ideological reasons there are just very practical reasons why making it public code helps um, it drives down the cost of developing the code first of all it improves the quality of the code and um, because when people know that it's going to be on github uh, in the public domain, they somehow up their game as to how how good they make their comments and how good the testing coverage is. And so, you know, you get better code. Um, but coming back to the ideological bit of it, absolutely, totally agree that, you know, if, if, we're, if we're using taxpayer money to develop code, it is absolutely scandalous that that code would not be owned by the taxpayer. I mean, what, what other... Um, commercial arrangement would would go forward with such a, a chaotic and, and pathetic sort of basis. You know, you would always want to own the code that you paid for if you did it privately. Um, so why wouldn't you um, have the same arrangement if you're in the public sector? So we're trying to influence public sector leaders to be a lot more savvy about open source and about code ownership. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't have to come from just leadership influencing. We are actually, we want to develop useful things because we, we, we talk about this all the time and it's easy to have an ideology. It's much harder to get people to really come along with you and to, to prevent the, the splitting of the, of the community. And we, we call this, when, when we see people from one part of the community bashing another part of the community, we call it, you know, it's the people's front of Judea, uh, bashing the Judean people's front, you know, splitters um, from, from the life of Brian. And what we need is a Brian, you know, when you've got a Brian, everything just moves forward because you need a big idea. You need an idea that people can believe in and get behind. And... Um, and actually, in the open source world, if you're talking about healthcare software, the, the Brian's, the, the kind of big ideas, would be literally just a piece of software that people use. Um, and so you, you can see where open source, a, a good enough piece of open source software can completely dominate an area. And the best example of that 
is uh, Blender. Uh, in the Blender communities, that's an open source 3D rendering software. And it's the only thing people use in that whole world, practically, because it's so bloody good. Um, WordPress is another good example. You know, WordPress operates about 30% of the entire internet. Um, and that's, that's an open source platform. So if you get a good enough project, then you don't really have to rely on the ideological arguments and all the kind of persuasion and the influencing. You can just ramp up your project, you know, let people follow the project and they're doing open source. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big, big part of what we believe in NHSR really is that just if we do it, I think that's been my advice to a lot of people over the years. It's just, just do whatever it is and people will come, basically. Exactly. Feel the dreams. If you build it, they will come. Yeah, precisely. Or Wayne's World too, depending on which you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Right. So I've read also that you describe yourself as a clinician who codes. So tell us about the clinician who codes movement and the value it brings to clinical services and to informatics. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a, a fairly new thing, the, the idea of terming yourself a clinician who codes, but I decided that I liked the idea. Um, and I know that not everybody thinks it's good. So I'll explain why they don't think it's good. I think that there is a, there is a culture of people who in software feel that, you know, a clinician who's just coding maybe as a sort of hobby can't possibly do it to a high enough standard um, to be safe. And I actually do have some sympathy with that viewpoint because I do think that clinical safety is incredibly hard to do. And it's also incredibly badly done at the moment. So with that in mind, given how badly done it is at the moment, um, I can't see any way I could do it worse, to be fair. And I know that that seems like an incredibly cocky challenge but I'm happy to go on record with that cocky challenge. I've, I've been involved in the health informatics world for a decade, and the way that clinical safety is managed in our software systems is frankly embarrassing, it's shambolic, it's uncoordinated, it's fragmented, it's got a lot of, com it, the commercial entities that provide the software have got far too much influence. It's a shambles. So I'm quite happy to say, I think that clinicians could do it better. Um, now, I'm only saying that in a hyperbolic way because I actually do value the IT professionals that are involved in healthcare software. And I think that they're incredibly important. And I think what I'm really trying to do is rebalance the, the kind of argument, rebalance the, the discourse around it. And I think clinicians need to be much more closely involved in developing the software. I don't think clinicians need to be able to code to do that either. I just happen to code because I find it quite interesting. Um, but I think there's, there's lots of clinicians who would like to get involved in software design who perhaps are really good at user interfaces and don't code. And what they need is to be given the, the keys to the machine. You know, they need to be let in the front door to be allowed to go and sit next to the people who do code and talk to them about what's good and what's bad and what's ugly. Um, and it's, it's sadly very difficult to do when, uh, particularly in the proprietary world that we live in, but when in an open source world, I think it's much easier for clinicians to get involved in that. So, so I am a clinician who codes and I'm very proud of that, um, but I don't think that every clinician who wants to get involved in software has to code. I think that's a fallacy that sometimes it's a sort of straw man argument that's sometimes thrown at me. It's like, oh, so you think everyone has to code? I'm like, nope, 
Not at all. I think everyone has to be given an opportunity to influence the software that they use every day in their work. Yes, indeed. I mean, I must say it's it, it's a little bit similar, of course, to the world of data science, because I'm just listening to you and thinking um, a, a lot of us data science get, get tarred with the same brush as, you know, we're sort of amateur programmers. On the whole, data scientists are self-taught as programmers and our yeah. software engineering practices are not great. Um, I do agree with what you're saying, actually. I won't, of course, name any names, but I have heard some real horror stories, actually, from the world of, of, of safety and security. And, and I do think that part of it is just everyone is just too cosy. I think and it, it, we're sort of back to the issue. It's almost like back, we used to call it when I worked um, back at university, we used to call it boundary spanning. The idea that people could sort of, you know, sit in two camps. And I yeah. think having clinicians in the room influencing these decisions, whether or not they can code, it's just a way of just breaking those barriers down and just having a, a better, broader conversation, really. Oh, totally. And I think the boundary spanners, um, if that's not too weird a term to use, <laughs> spanners, um, we, we are boundary spanners and we span boundaries. And um, the, those people are always going to be the weird fish. They have to be the, the pioneers that go out there and, and break the new ground. But hopefully what we can do is make it easier for the people who come after us. And one of the things I really wanted to do with the clinicians who code movement is actually teach and say, look, I've, I've had a hell of a time doing this. It's been really hard, but I can make it easier for the people who come after me. And so a real great example of how you can make it easier is in the world of the web circa 2000, um, when people were building the first kind of web 2.0 web applications, things like eBay and things like that, Everything was hand-coded um, PHP, uh, which addressed some SQL database in the background, and you had to write your SQL queries in the PHP, and everything was entirely hand-knitted, as it were, and there was no frameworks to assist you and make that better. Um, only about five years after that, things like Ruby on Rails came along, which used the, con the, the concept of convention over configuration, which meant that there were conventional ways, which if you just used the Rails way, meant that your SQL queries were done for you and your security was done for you and your user logins were done for you. And so it made it an order of magnitude easier to make a high quality web application. Now, actually that was a major step forward, that web framework idea and the web um, has then actually gone off on it and made itself a lot more complex since then because we've got things like you know lots of front-end applications and things have got a lot harder but what i'm i want to port that idea of convention over configuration into the clinicians who code movement so what we can do is say look if you want to build a clinical application use this framework and a lot of the clinical safety things and the security things that you would otherwise definitely get wrong we're gonna handle them for you, and then you won't get them wrong. So it's about coalescing our community into using a small subset of tools that we all work on, and we sharpen these tools and we get them better and better and better to the point where actually um, they are already secure out of the box kind of thing. So if someone wants to write, I want to write a little application uh, for my trust that does um, a, a clinical pathway, for example, we would have a pathway framework which would have connectors into the common um, electronic health record systems in both directions, 
um, but would augment the functionality in a secure and clinically safe way. And then you'd build your, your pathway, which might just be a series of steps. And this stuff is all, it's all just software. It, it's all within the wit of man to produce. Um, so yeah, we absolutely have to sort of pass on the knowledge through our software so that we get better stuff uh, down the line. Yes, indeed. I must say, I, having, I have myself written some terrible PHP applications and Ruby on Rails, for me anyway, is indistinguishable from magic, basically. It's quite amazing, the, the, little, the little work. And of course, it's a good example of open source model. As you say, it's having a, a core base that everybody works on that is absolutely known to be robust and secure. And then you can just build anything you like on top of it without worrying about, you know, the database connect. I mean, you know, people shouldn't be writing their own database connections. It's not safe, but you don't need to do that. You know, it's, you can, it's all taken care of for, for you. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that also highlights that comes back to the argument when people say, look, we're the IT specialists. We'll do it properly. You just go back and see patients. Okay. And leave us to it. And the retort to that is of course, look, you know, if the IT industry was so good, uh, you you wouldn't need all these frameworks to make your your um, software better, and the idea that so so IT specialists can make mistakes too is what I'm saying. They can make mistakes too. I'm a clinician and I know how to build software, but I can make mistakes. What we all need, all of us, whether we're an IT specialist or a clinician who codes, we all need better tools that reduce the chance of us making mistakes. And actually that reaches out into the, the end result of all this, which is as a clinician, when I am seeing patients, I also need tools. So the software that I use has to help me prevent, make me make mistakes. Um, I, I don't want to make mistakes when I'm seeing patients, but the software I use often makes it quite likely that I will make mistakes. It makes it likely that I'll miss information. It makes it likely that it will be harder to record information. The software we have in the health space is frankly disastrous. It's absolutely appalling. It doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't work well. It doesn't have the fancy features that would augment me as a human and make me feel like a superhero when I'm seeing patients. It actually makes me feel a bit of a, a, a bit of a, a sort of disaster area when I'm when I'm seeing patients. So we absolutely have to fix the software and make it better. So, so yeah, when people come to me and say, you know, um, should you be involved in software? I say, absolutely, I should. But absolutely, we both, whether you're an IT specialist or a clinician, we both need to be working on these frameworks that help improve the quality of stuff we can, we can build. We need to teach each other and we need to use things like, you know, industry best practices like DevOps, you know, good, solid, um, automated um, deployments and automated testing and all those kind of things so that um, so that it makes it incredibly hard for an inadvertent error to ever see uh, the front line kind of thing that those errors will be caught way upstream yes indeed yeah speaking of um, terrible software I had a, a consultant appointment yesterday and they were looking at my medical records and basically the interface was 8,000 PDFs and there's somewhere, yeah. you know, my, my details of an appointment were somewhere in that. And he clicked around for a bit and he was just like, I can't. It's yeah. not in it. And clearly, you know, a, a good information retrieval system should be the opposite. That it should go, oh, it's just here. Here it is. And show it to him immediately. I mean, the, the absolute simplest thing that, that isn't there is, you know, when you go into a medical record, 
what does everybody look at, right? Um, it, Amazon have got this right, okay? So when you go to Amazon, it says like, you know, people who looked at this uh, 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 item also looked at this item, right? I want that for medical records. I want, so when you go into the medical records, like, okay, what is the letter that's so crucial to someone's care that everybody seems to look at it? And it'll be, you know, it'll be the, the last letter from the oncologist, or it'll be the, the one that makes the diagnosis, or it'll be the entry in the record that where the patient had a really long and useful session with the GP about their depression. And I want a heat map that shows me where the best bits of this medical record are, because lots of medical record is, is in there purely to be a record. It's a kind of, it's there for posterity. It's there in case of medical legal um, issues. It's there in the very small situation where somebody needs to know exactly what date they were given their um, diphtheria, tetanus, and, and pertussis uh, immunization. You know, a lot of the record isn't actually that relevant. So we have this problem, um, which funnily enough, I tweeted about last night about the, the data saves lives movement, which is that more data saves more lives, more data always good, more, 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 more data. Well, you're forgetting about the wetware. And there's a great blog, um, which I can send you a link to for the, for the show notes, which is uh, by Zoe Neal, who's a GP, um, who has written an incredibly good blog about the, the overload of data is exceeding the capacity of the wetware, which by which we mean the brain. You know, the human brain can only cope with a certain amount of information in a certain amount of time. And we're already overloaded with decisions to make and things to think about and considerations. So our records have now got to the point where having all the data in them is not actually helpful. We, we need guidance to get to the best bits of the data. We need that heat map. We need the people who looked at this part of the record also looked at this part of the record. We need great tools to make us feel like you know, machine-assisted humans as opposed to machine-hampered humans. And so absolutely, we, we've, got to, we've got to turn this around because what we will very soon approach is that point where um, another phrase I've, I've coined is the dark clinical record, which is like, you know, dark matter. You know it must be there, but you can't find it. And that's what your consultant was experiencing when they had 8,000 PDFs and they could not find the pieces of information they wanted. PDFs, uh, well, certainly a clinical system made of PDFs are not searchable. An individual PDF is searchable when you're looking at it in, in you know, Adobe Reader. But um, when you're looking at a clinical system that's composed of PDFs, it seems that they have decided for their own reasons that they're satisfied with not being a, an ability to search within the text of the PDFs. So generally, in a clinical system, you are now faced with a human that's... Um, got a patient to see and maybe 10 or 15 minutes to see them, whether you're in primary care or secondary care, you've got very short appointments. You've got a computer system containing the entire patient's life, every little thing that's ever happened to them that that hospital or primary care um, establishment is aware of. And you've got to read it all in 10, 15 minutes. Well, that just that's just ridiculous. It doesn't scale. You cannot make people read that much stuff. You, they can't think about it. it they can't comprehend it. So, but at the moment, no one is talking about this. People are still talking about data saves lives and let's share as much data as possible. Well, unless we solve the problem of data overload now, 
then we're going to actually just crash and burn in a few years time when all data that about a patient is available to all clinicians all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's very nice overlap actually between sort of the worlds of data science and the world of sort of clinical informatics, what you're talking about. I have to say, recommender systems that you, you know, people who look at this, look at this, has been a big interest of mine. I work in patient experience. That's one of the things that I look at. And it's the same problem of millions of pieces of data, but which bit of data do you want? You know, the, the facilities manager wants to read a different piece of data to the ward manager. Now, how do you solve that problem? How do you find the right bit of data for them and show it to them? And that's my big thing at the moment. I, I think recommender systems are, as far as I knew, almost unused in, in healthcare. And as you're saying, they could be quite transformative, really. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to I'd love to see what what the data science community can do, actually, because they they are exactly the people to solve this problem and um, recommender systems absolutely solve a small piece of the puzzle. And if you look at where they are placed in the continuum of all software you could have in healthcare, we've got very basic software that does you know things like appointments and lab uh, information systems and things. On the hard left, you know, down at the very boring dull end, these are kind of Unix-y telnet systems that from the 1970s. And then there's nothing in the middle. And then you've got trillions of pounds being spent in venture capital into artificial intelligence. And I sort of think, why, why is it that there's nothing in the middle? Because your recommender system absolutely is in the middle of that. It's not trying to pretend it's going to be a doctor. And I think it's ridiculous to imagine that um, AI will supplant medical um, knowledge and medical intelligence in any sort of short time frame. I mean, I'm a, I'm a futurologist as much as the next guy. I'm uh, a big fan of Charlie Stross's Accelerando, which is a great book about, you know, the, the, the rate accelerating rate of change in technology um it's a great book by the way great science fiction book but come on guys bullshitting me about what your ai could do i i don't buy it whatsoever what i will buy what i will buy not only buy i'll invest in it you know i will be right behind it is people who are coming up with an um, open introspectable non-black box um, expert systems, things that I can that are deterministic, but yet still make your life easier. So you can make a, a recommender system can be completely deterministic. It can be entirely about, you know, ranking these bits of information, the knowledge pieces, um, you rank them and you, you also sort of tag that information with who's looking. So like you say, the, the ward manager, needs a different piece of information to uh, somebody who's in the uh, in trust management and, and also to the patients. You know, patients um, will need different pieces of information and uh, we've got the technology to be able to offer them this as well. Uh, that's why I'm really distrustful of the, the whole idea that, that no progress is possible unless it's an AI progress. Well, absolutely, that's, that's wrong. There is much that can be done that is really simple. You know, improving user interfaces and making it easier for patients to navigate even just the trust website. Like, show me a trust website that's not a total pile of crap, and I will, you know, I, and I will kiss the developer. Um, and even more so, show me a trust intranet that's not a pile of crap.
Yes, indeed. Yes. Well, that's uh, that is the the, uh, the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, isn't it? Um, yeah. Nobody wants to work on the basic stuff today. That's a big big problem. Everybody wants to do this new AI stuff. And uh, yes, I think we're we're of one mind as far as that goes. Um, right. Okay. Let's just talk about. So let's just we have been talking about open source obviously throughout, but let's just. Um, how do you think open source is doing at the moment? What do you think are the next steps for open source in in the health community? Oh, I mean, open source has never been stronger. Um, it's it's just gradually inching its way forward. That's the power. That's the great thing about open source. It doesn't need hyperbole. It doesn't need um, billion dollar investments or venture capital or seed funding. It just cranks its way inexorably along the concrete floor. It's it's crawling along. It might not necessarily move faster than the people who've got all this funding, but what it is, it's immovable. So I like to think of it, it's like it's anchored to the floor, just grinding its way along. Um, and, and that means that eventually when these um, ephemeral unicorn projects collapse into themselves, you know, AI is, certainly AI in healthcare, eventually we will find AI uses for AI in healthcare. And I think there might be a couple of good use cases, you know, things like image um, recognition and uh, helping to sort of highlight the triage, the images for radiologists, for example. And there may be dozens of other good use cases around that area. But by and large, a lot of the AI that purports to speak directly to patients and things like that is a bubble. It's, it's, um, it's like the dot-com bubble. It's fueled by the fact that there's investors with money and they want to pour money into something and they're hoping that they will be at the right point of the investment cycle and the hype cycle to be able to cash out before it all collapses. Um, but when it collapses, open source will be there and we'll still be there at the end of time. Um, so open source is doing great. Open source outside the healthcare arena is doing great. I mean, you look at the projects that dominate the, NH the, the, the whole internet. So Unix is a great example. You know, Linux is an, is an open source unix and basically runs the entire internet wordpress open source discourse open source docker open source and um, there are so many key pieces of infrastructure that are open source open standards is another thing um, so you can't really do open standards without open source because it, it's a bit hollow to put out an open standard for you know say we come up with an open standard for the, the best possible healthcare record format it's pretty pointless doing that unless you've got an open source implementation, a reference implementation to give out and say, this is the, the implementation. You feel, you know, feel free to build your own implementations, but this is one you can use. So um, open source is absolutely, it, it's, it's a vibrant and exciting place. Um, and everywhere you look, there's more and more being done. Um, the things like Ruby on Rails, which were open source from the start, uh, have not gone away and have gone from strength to strength. Um, so all those things are just building and building and building. It's interesting. What, yeah, I mean, I do agree about open source. It, 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 there is a sort of inexorability, isn't there, about it? Um, yeah. There's quite an interesting debate, I think, partly because of the log4j uh, issues. There's quite an, a, a, a big debate that I'm sure you're aware of in the open source world about you know, how to fund open source and like how uh, you mentioned the Blender project, obviously that's very successful. 
And I always think that the, you know, health and social care are curiously absent from that debate. I often wonder because, you know, the NHS and, you know, other care organisations in, in this country give a lot of money. They, they spend a lot of money on proprietary software. And yet we don't support, you know, I, what I would really like to see is, is an NHS or a health and social care system that supports, you know, open source. So, for example, why don't we, you know, so, for example, we all, NHSR, we obviously all love R, you know, the NHS could... Uh, provide funding either to the you know to R itself as part of the R Foundation or one of the many projects that sits around it you know the the um, the, the various badgings and projects and community things and all that kind of thing um, and that's been curiously absent so far. I totally agree and I think that where if if you are a good um, open source community member then if you're using a framework like that and you're using it at scale and you're making money from it uh, or you're using it for your main business as an NHS nonprofit sort of thing, it would behoove you to try and find a way to donate to that foundation or whatever to support it because it's self-interest really. It's not about, oh, we're lovely, lovely people supporting the open source community. Look, if, that, if you're using the open source framework or tool or whatever and it goes down, you know, basically if it, if it has a major um, problem security issue or if it uh, ceases to exist because the developers have just run out of steam then you're screwed so you need it to exist and it's not as if this is a unique to open source problem because if um, if you are building your system on something like Microsoft Health Vault which was a product that Microsoft excitedly rushed into the marketplace probably about it's like 12 years ago now when healthcare IT was, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's build a platform that everyone can build their, their medical record on. And then Microsoft uh, decided it was a bad idea and they withdrew Microsoft Health Vault. So even proprietary software can just die and you, you are totally screwed. Um, you're double screwed if it's proprietary because you haven't got access to the source code. Uh, so you can't even continue the project after its death. Whereas with open source, if, um, the developers decide, oh, we've had enough of this, and they leave. Uh, someone else can take over the curation and the and the maintenance maintenance of that uh, package. So, absolutely, I, I do think that you know NHSR um, community uh, should it find itself in control of any uh, resource should at the very least you know try and put in a little bit of of a donation to support. The R, the R project itself um, and maybe some of the other ancillary tools around the R project. And I would say that the way that we get that to happen is if you're listening to this podcast and you're involved in the NHS R community or NHS coding community or any of those communities and you feel strongly like I do that we should be doing this, then get yourself a job in leadership because we can't do this by just... Um, arguing from the sidelines, as it were, uh, that we should be doing X and Y, uh, you know, virtuous things. You've got to go and get skin in the game. And um, I hate committees. I hate organizations and their bullshit and the way that you, you know, terms of reference and meetings and they just, they make me die on the inside. But I have made myself get involved in the Royal College of GPs in order to give us influence. And every meeting I go to, that word open source gets dropped in. And gradually that 
pulls the super tanker around and eventually probably long after i'm dead you know the people who've been influenced by the people who were influenced by the people who were influenced by the people who were influenced by me you know we've got this chain reaction and we try and pull it round into understanding open source and bring and, and supporting the projects that we need to use so go for positions of influence you know, um, there is no reason why you can't be the chief clinical information officer at your trust, why you can't um, apply to be on the board of the ICS as a as a, a data scientist, why you can't get involved in uh, senior management in, in trusts and in NHS X, E, D, I, or whatever they come up with next. So get involved. There's no sitting on the sidelines, you know, and, and we can win if we do that. Can you imagine a world in, in 10 years time? Imagine everybody who's listening to this goes and gets a senior job in NHS England and they're all talking open source. Um, well, we'll we, we won't even need a podcast to go and um, to go and evangelize about open source because everyone will already be on board. Yes, indeed. It makes me think of uh, Mark Farr, actually. Um, he has a phrase, uh, tattoos and cufflinks on this very idea of basically, I think, to be honest, it's certainly in my world, data scientists, analysts, I think a lot of us, including me, are very happy sitting on the sidelines complaining and saying that's terrible and it won't work and all this kind of stuff. And actually, we should, in fact, be doing what you're saying. We should just step up and just say, no, you know, yeah. I've got some ideas and, and I'm going to get involved. Yeah, and actually, you know, so so the NHS, NHSR community is, is a stepping up thing in that, you know, you form the community around something you're using. So that is great. I also like, you know, NHS PyCon, um, the Python community around the NHS, because they've also decided to step up and, and make things uh, a community. So we need more of that kind of stuff. And, and there are lots of organizations that, you know, say if you don't fancy uh, applying for a job within, uh, you know, a, one of the learned community one of the learned organizations in the nhs or, or one of the trusts or whatever there are lots of voluntary organizations that need leadership and uh it can be a big drain on your time and i don't underestimate how hard it can be but get involved and um you can you know reap the rewards kind of thing and get get the uh you know get the the ideology and the thought process into the right parts of the NHS. Because if we don't get involved, well, who will get those jobs? The people who will get those jobs will just be kind of dull functionary people who um, don't really have an original thought, but but have got the job. So in the end, he who dares wins, you know, they have got the job and they won't make any big changes. They'll, they'll buy Microsoft forever and they'll buy closed source forever and they'll leave things really not improved after they retire we could get a generation of people in there who are energized and focused and connected to the, the new ways of doing things such as open source and really change things. Yeah. Well, I saw what they always say is that no one ever got fired for buy Microsoft and uh, we need some, uh, we need some courage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope people are listening to this are suitably inspired to, uh, to step up and get involved. So, I, well, I think we'll wrap up there. I have, to, I have some more questions, but I think we've, uh, I think we've, we've, we've talked around a lot of them. Um, so, we're just going to wrap up with the optional question at the end, which is just: uh, Do you think what else would be good for us to cover on the podcast? Are there subjects, people, or projects do you think our listeners benefit from hearing about? It would be good to cover public money, public code, which is an organisation that I'm involved in. Um, I think we could maybe have a, a podcast where we talk a little bit more about the. Um, languages and tools that have been useful 
and maybe practices as well as that. So things like automated testing, DevOps, how to set those things things up, and GitHub Actions and that kind of stuff has, has made all of that so much more accessible and easy and free. So um, definitely those kind of those kind of things are, are useful because you want to provide, as well as talking about the high level stuff, which I think we've we've probably talked about today. It's good to talk about the the kind of more nuts and bolts of things. Um, the other thing that I'd love to talk about if I was to come back or uh, if you want to get my colleague uh, Simon Chapman involved is um, the uh, digital growth charts, which I, is a project that I've been involved in for about two years with the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. And that is just my it's my the proudest moment of my whole career in being involved in that because it is a fully open source python based um statistical engine which takes the um the data which is used to um calculate children's growth um, and these tables were developed by a guy called tim cole um who's professor of statistics at ucl and he um use those to develop a way of very rapidly working out where children um, sit in terms of their growth so height and weight compared to their peers because the the important thing about growth is that you can't just look at a child and say that's a small child because you don't know um, children don't grow linearly so you can't just take that age and say well you're too short you actually have to have something to compare them against. And so what we do is we compare them against other children that are exactly the same age to, to within two weeks of age. And we look at that range and we say, okay, this child might be underweight. Why is this child underweight? I mean, in, in and, and so we can then use that as a diagnostic tool to start look, doing investigations on this child. Why is this child so underweight? So it's a vital tool. And that tool has been around for, 30 or 40 years in the pediatrics world in fact much longer than that if you look into the history of growth charts but there's never been a digital version of them and in the last two years we've built a digital version fully in open source we've got um github actions devops we've got documentation we've you we've we've done it to absolutely the limits of our ability to do it really well and i'd love to be able to talk about that project in more detail and particularly bring in simon who's written a lot of it and um, and um so yeah i would love to talk about that yes i do know i i do know that project for um i i, I um we were talking about on twitter the other day weren't we because i was compiling a list of projects that in the that do it that do it well and that was one of the projects that i put in um, oh, yeah yeah thank you for that well yes let's do that i mean i it, yes i think i would like to cover nuts and bolts on this program um we do try and do that where we can um but sometimes it's difficult to kind of it can be sometimes a bit more difficult to talk about them, can't they? Because it's a bit, it depends on the, on the listenership and all this kind of thing. But that'd be a really good thing to do. Well, let, let's talk about that in more detail another time then. I think that's a good idea. Um, and speaking of nuts and bolts, I think also DevOps as well. It's also something that I'd like to, because that, to, in my sort of limited circle, is understood very poorly, really, in, in, in my world. Uh, and obviously, it's a vital part, really, of everything that we do. It's just about finding people who are able to come on. I mean, I, I do devops i you know i run a server but i would never talk about it on a podcast because i'm absolutely terrible at it so that would be completely the wrong thing to do well we're all learning so i think it's it would be great to, to do those kind of things and cover the, the nuts and bolts 
Um, maybe even another thing to do would be have a sort of a Q&A for the community and, and actually have them along so that we can answer the questions of the NHS our community. Not myself, really, but just, you know, generally, I think that's a good idea to do because uh, that's a good way to ground yourself answering the questions people want to hear answered, certainly. Oh, that's quite a good idea, isn't it? Yes, I hadn't thought about that. Yes. Well, if anyone's listening to it and they've got a question, do send it to me. I might try and have a better version of that than me just saying, please send any questions at the end. I might put something in the show notes, actually. That's not a bad idea. And we could actually maybe either address them in the podcast or, or, or have a, a podcast about whatever the question was about, depending on what it was. Yes, that's a good idea. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much for your time. Um, that was very enjoyable. Thank you for having me. I'll wrap up now. So I want to just close by just uh, thanking Marcus again for a very interesting talk. I would like to thank also our editor, Tom Jemmett, um, who makes, we haven't had any disasters actually. We normally, I'd say there's been some horrible disasters, but this has been pretty smooth. So Tom has got a relatively easy job, I think this time, but nonetheless, he does do all the editing and it's, uh, he does a, a fine job of it. So thank you for that. And we will return. We've got, more people coming up. We've got um, some people coming from NHS PyCom that Marcos mentioned. We've got that community coming up soon. We've got someone from NHSX talking about um, sort of productionizing machine learning, which might also, I would think, might talk a little bit about DevOps would be actually exciting. And we've got various people as well talking about um, uh, some more stuff to do with Open and all this kind of stuff from NHSX. So we've got we've got stuff for the year planned. Um, so we'll leave it there. And so who you could invite it, you, uh, Tim Cole is an R programmer, so he would be a great person to talk to about how to do how how he's approached the problem of uh, growth charts. Uh, he's he's done all of the work in R. We built our system in Python, and that meant that um, he tested all our tests were basically done in R. So he uh, is a great person that you should definitely get on. Oh, okay. I think we'll come back to this subject. Let's come back to this subject with some of the people that you mentioned. I think that will be, uh, I think our viewers would, uh, viewers, our listeners would, would, would be glad to hear about that. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much, everyone. I'll just wrap up there. See you next time.